Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Onamik Sahar about race and the cultural industries, which is his new book that was published this year. So welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Um, It's hard to kind of underestimate how important this book is, primarily because it's, certainly in Britain at least, the first really major intervention from critical race theory into cultural industries. So I'm really delighted that we're talking about it. I guess it'd be good to know where it's come from, partially in terms of like your own career, yeah. but also a bit about like what's been the problem in the field that it hasn't taken race seriously. Yeah. Um, I'll start with a bit of biography. I don't want it to be um, too self-indulgent. Um, so you were born? What? I was born, yeah. <laughs> born in Hackney. Um, I, I've always been really... Just my interest in popular culture, like growing up, I just became really interested in production context. So like the music I used to listen to, I was very much interested in, you know, the kind of, in this kind of post-punk era, like the politics of DIY culture production. Um, I was also very interested in issues of race. And so I was very much you know, kind of a starting point for me, you know, kind of going back to undergrad and through my master's was the way in which the new generation of British-born, second-generation Asians um, were making culture. You know, at the time when I was an undergrad, there was a really interesting moment in the mid-90s, and I've written about this a bit before, where, you know, we saw a kind of shift from invisibility, that is, I'm talking about, you know, kind of, Asian, British, Asian popular culture, if you like, kind of being non-existent to this kind of explosion. And I was, obviously, that was a very interesting, if not exciting moment for me, um, both personally and intellectually. And I guess from an intellectual point of view, I was interested by how they were making this stuff themselves. Um, They were predominantly independent. um, And that enabled them in lots of ways. But ultimately, it also uh, impacted on their ability to really go to have an impact on the mainstream, you know. So the the independence kind of enabled them, but it also ultimately kind of relegated them to the margins. And so I was kind of interested in those kind of dynamics. And so especially in terms of, you know, I was fed up with the way in which brown people in particular are understood and represented in this country. I saw that moment as a really interesting one in terms of kind of deconstructing normative understandings of what it is to be, you know, of Asian-ness, but also constructing radical new ideas. Well, is probably too strong a word, but also articulating new forms of Britishness. You know, that was a really interesting moment, culturally, politically. But in terms of how that moment was um, kind of uh, constrained, I guess, or limited by production, by the cultural industries themselves. I mean, this, like, there's a couple of, like, key terms in terms of, um, I guess structures or you know questions about how the dynamics of industries mm. function that you know are really at the heart of the book mm. um, and what the book is is trying to do. And I guess you know kind of 
pointing us beyond both um, surface questions about you know why doesn't a band make it or yeah. what kind of news is on telly or, or whatever to more structural analysis and also at the same time drawing us beyond contemporary theoretical approaches to cultural and creative industries that have really kind of like missed yeah place. yeah so I, I suppose the kind of like the big headline question at the start of the book is like why do we need a new theory of, of race mm. and ethnicity in, in cultural production like why has this been i don't know just something that's been neglected yeah. you know and why is it time now yeah i mean i guess so this book kind of came out of two um two themes of dis- dissatisfaction so firstly i was dissatisfied with uh race critical theory um obviously has influenced me and shaped me in really profound ways that kind of those people, those scholars who've centralised questions of race, especially especially in relation to culture. Um, but I see, I've just seen a kind of lack of interest in uh, the question of representation. Actually, I think that's that was a really interesting thing for me because when I was a student again um, in the, like in the mid nineties to late nineties, you know, that research, that kind of interest in what Stuart Hall calls the politics of representation, was like a key a key part of all kind of race critical scholarship. Um, but then that debate seemed to have stalled. And, you know, I think that was for a number of reasons. I think, you know, it became that kind of tradition became really kind of theoretical and esoteric and, um, you know, kind of going into really elaborate forms of deconstruction, which became removed. The analysis of those texts became removed from the actual lived realities of the people that were being represented. So I can kind of understand that. I can, you know, it was also seen as, well, you know, why are we looking at popular culture when there's, you know, real forms of racial violence, economic exploitation, racial subjugation still going on? You know, why are we looking at, why are we analysing this Hollywood film when, you know, the economic realities for people of colour are, you know, really extreme and, 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 and you know, need to be engaged with at a way different level? Um, and actually, that, while I agree with those, I think actually then became a neglect of the question of cultural production, actually. That kind of question of cultural production, cultural commodification, cultural consumption, actually, I think there are something something really important about that, and maybe we can talk about that in a moment. But basically, there was a that kind of discussion, that kind of theoretical work kind of went into decline. I was also very interested, as you point out, in kind of theories of cultural production um, and the dynamics of the cultural industries um, and how they make culture, why, you know, why, why it's important to recognise the dangers, if you like, of culture making being in the hands of an elite, you know, that, you know, who, who decide what's get, what gets made and how. I'm very interested in those questions, but as you say, there was a, you know, a, a total lack of interest in race and it seems to me well actually one of the key ways of if, you, if you're interested in looking at the relationship between capitalism and culture you know actually race is you know you can't avoid that question really and so dissatisfied with the way in which kind of race critical scholarship wasn't dealing with issues of cultural production but then frustrated also with the way in which theories of cultural production weren't didn't seem to be interested in questions of race at all apart from a few notable exceptions I feel like actually this was a way of reinvigorating both those fields, um, but especially in the field of race and critical of, of race critical studies, I think in particular. Um, 
this was an attempt to kind of reinvigorate that discussion and bring back culture to the core um, of, yeah, of that kind of research and scholarship, because actually that's kind of fallen out by the wayside. There's not many of us, I feel like, in the UK at least, doing kind of studies of race in the media. Actually. I mean, like almost as if we'd planned these questions. Um, it sets up perfectly something in the book early on. You know, we, we've dealt with, I guess, what's quite a, at times a heavy theoretical debate. Mm. But quite early on in the book, you're straight into news, mm. you know, and how race and ethnicity are really important in the news. And, you mm. know, what gets on, decisions are made. But also in terms of like just how having an understanding of the newsroom yeah, uh, and an understanding of race and ethnicity really kind of transforms what we understand about news. So I wonder if you just throw out a couple of examples of, of the newsroom. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things there's, you know, in media studies, there's this, especially in kind of journalism and, and newsroom studies in particular, the kind of emerged out of a critique of kind of media as ideological state apparatus right you know that functionist approach of like the news is you know in the hands of this kind of powerful elite and they use the news for you know to 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 reinforce their own ideologies and views and worldviews and so on and their status in society um and i mean in some respects it's hard to disagree with that argument um especially if you look at the way in which the news kind of reproduce constantly over and over again very narrow tropes of race and racial and ethnic groups you know it's the kind of regime of representation to use your words it's incredibly profoundly narrow you know when it comes to the the kind of stories about that entail questions of race and so on um but saying that, I think the problem with that argument, even though I kind of agree with the conclusions, is because it doesn't really offer much in terms of like politically, you know, other than just to say, well, the news is kind of, you know, dominated by this particular group. And that explains why. Um, and actually, news production is really much more complex than that, not least, you know, the fact the agency of journalists. Um, and... So I think the new and, and, and also I mean newsroom studies, that's one of the most developed fields of like production studies. You know, that is one of the most developed fields in terms of scholars actually going in and looking at how culture's being made, or in this instance news is being made. It's the most it's you know, probably the most sophisticated or at least not the most sophisticated, certainly the most developed. And so there were some really interesting case studies there. And so one of the questions I've really engaged with, which kind of underpins the book, if you like, is this question of will increasing the number of minorities in the culture industries lead to their better representation um, in news, on screen, in literature, in you know music making or whatever, uh, which is the assumption, right? That's the assumption in policy debates. Yeah. We need to diversify our media because we're obviously not catering for our diverse audiences and therefore we have, if we have more minorities, then they will create um, productions that will you know mean something to these minorities and what newsroom studies have shown certainly newsroom studies of race have shown is that actually you know they show starkly how people of color are constrained uh, within these contexts and they're constrained not least because as many newsroom and journalism studies have shown the kind of commercialization of news production has meant that you know the 24-hour news cycle the kind of dependency on advertisers um the kind of um falling revenues which means that kind of newsrooms are being downsized obviously all of these impact on the quality of news and you know for instance investigative journalism 
on and so on and so forth. Um, and then it also hits people of colour in very particular ways as well. Um, I, there was this one quote from a study by Emily Drew, who I think is an American journalism studies scholar, who talks about um, a black journalist who she's interviewed, who, who says, you know, this is again against the backdrop of the of, of a kind of a, of an approach to race and diversity, which says the more diverse the newsroom, the more diverse the range of news. And this journalist says, the more you work under a white editor, the more you think like a white journalist. I'm paraphrasing that. I can't remember the exact quote, but, and that to me was really revealing in terms of, well, actually it's all very well having more minorities in the culture industries and who wouldn't want that. I'm certainly not arguing against those initiatives, but at the same time, the cultures of production as such, especially within the newsroom, demonstrate exactly the ways in which people of colour are constrained. Um, and yeah, in, 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 lots of, in, lots of different, in lots of different ways. One of the best writers on that topic, I think, um, who, you know, kind of happened upon by chance is um, an American scholar called Gwyneth Mellinger. And she talks um, very compellingly about the way in which, uh, you know, minorities kind of become commodified within these situations. They've kind of become a commodity to be chased after. And even then, and, and then even then, once they're in, they're expected to perform their race in a particular way. And obviously one of the most common ways is the way in which if you're a minority writer, therefore you should be the one writing about kind of minority issues. Um, and, you know, she very, I can't remember that again, this is a, um, I'm doing a dis, dis, disservice to her argument, but, you know, the way in which you would never, if you kind of, you would question a black journalist, for instance, writing about finance, for instance, you'd be assumed that that person got there because of some kind of tick boxing quota agenda thingy. But you would never expect, you know, that, that same question would never be expected of a white journalist where that seems their natural kind of habitat, if you like, that's their natural beat. Um, and no one would question that. But if you're a person of colour kind of writing outside, who manages to write beyond their community, then, yeah, you're kind of questioned in that way. Similarly, though, that burden of representation, right, that, but that kind of double bind that journalists of colour face with wanting to, you know, kind of be motivated to want to write about the communities in particular ways, and in more kind of uh, progressive ways or radical ways, but then also feeling constrained by that as well. Um, and I can certainly apply that to my career in terms of being a scholar, race, and media. Is to what extent you want to write about those issues are really important, but then also you kind of resent the way that you're kind of forced within that as well. So yeah, so newsroom studies have shown really interesting examples of how people of colour. Are constrained, and I think in some ways that's much more. In, I mean, obviously, there's you can you, usual, the usual way in which those questions have been tackled in terms of discrimination, like overt discrimination on the part of white editors, for instance, kind of you know the way they abuse kind of journalists of color. And obviously, when those things happen, they need to be talked about and exposed. But actually, I think what happens more um, is the way in which people of color are steered in particular ways. Yeah, I mean this. Um, it, it is crucial actually in terms of thinking about a structural perspective mm. um, and pointing us again towards, you know, not just questions of political economy, mm. which I think are really very well served uh, in terms of production studies and, you know, thinking about who is paying for the news, mm. you know, what, what the uh, things driving things like ownership or, you know, um, 
kind of media monopolies and that mm. kind of stuff. But actually thinking about no, you know, there are dynamics that allow entry, but actually end up replicating patterns of structural inequalities around mm. race, but also gender, yeah. social class, questions about sexuality, disability, etc. That kind of you know give us the news that we have yeah. in the ways that we really need to shine a light on. And, mm. I, and I think one of the most interesting things you're alluding to there was the insufficiency rather than say the failure, but the insufficiency of policy interventions. Mm. And this kind of takes up um, a good part of the middle of the book mm. where you, you think through both um, a kind of uh, a moment of policy intervention around this idea about cultural diversity. Mm. But you also introduce, I think, a, a really fascinating theoretical term around racialized governmentality. Mm. So I wonder, could you give me a kind of like a little sense, you know, a kind of like user-friendly guide to racialized <laughs> governmentality, uh, but also, you know, perhaps drawing on that kind of moment yeah. of cultural diversity, because I yeah. think that is a wonderful illustration of, of what could be quite, you know, kind of yeah. heavy idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't this isn't a Foucauldian analysis by any by any um, uh, by any stretch. I took that racialized governmentality. I took that from Barna Hesse, um, and I remember writing this. You know, kind of going through my notes and seeing this term. Kind of, I was working with it throughout my PhD, and then it kind of fed into this book. And then when I actually when I actually went back to the source, I found it was just a footnote. In oh, really? The, in the chapter he wrote. I think he's got a new book on this called Raceocracy, which develops this. Um, and it's basically about the way in which race is governed, right? And so, you know, there's, we kind of live in a world now where, you know, kind of media shapes our ideas about race and, 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 and amongst other institutions. And, um, and so it's about trying to think about the way in which the media, I like this idea of the way in which media governs the narratives of difference. And I use, I basically, I think the full phrase which you're alluding to is I talk about commodification as mm. a technology of racialized governmentalities. To illustrate this actually, and this probably was a, probably a better starting point for where the idea of the book came from. I, in, I, you know, as after graduation, I worked in the media a bit, or certainly I was kind of meeting other Asians who worked in the media and they were, you know, they're all creatives in some way. They were like, you know, authors, playwrights, filmmakers, and so on. And we talk about their work and we talk about their kind of, you know, what motivates them and so on. And, you know, what was clear was as well as wanting to be great artists, they were like fed up. They were, you know, dissatisfied or indeed horrified by the way in which British Asians were being represented in the media. When not invisible, it was kind of that, either that exotic or kind of denigrated tropes, you know, it's either Bollywood weddings or terrorism um and they you know they talked about their work as wanting to challenge wanting to challenge those kind of the narrow ways in which asian people have been represented in the media and the culture industries uh, you know that was great no you know they seemed really right on and i was drawn to these people and you know i kept in touch and then but then i would look at their work and it was another film about forced marriage it was another documentary about you know, kind of suicide bombers or, you know, jihad, you know, kind of young Muslims being drawn to terrorism. It was another, it was another book about, you know, the kind of, you know, on the front cover, you've got a woman in a sari running barefoot across a marble floor, <laughs> essentially reproducing the very tropes they set out to challenge. And I was, you know, on the, and I was like thinking about, well, why, why is that? What, what, what the hell's going on? On one hand, were they being disingenuous? Yeah. yeah. You know, in the first place, I don't think so, actually. I certainly, I didn't think they were lying to me about their motivations, but there was something going on in the production process that steered them into reproducing 
the very tropes that they had set out to challenge and deconstruct. Into that gap in the market. Exactly, right? And so what was going on that, you know, and, and then you, and so, you know, essentially for my PhD anyway, I was tracking, I was tracking the making of the culture commodity and I was looking, I ended up that kind of the thesis ended up being split into um, the different stages of production. What happens at commissioning and acquisition? What happens at distribution? What happens at packaging and design? The, the aestheticization of the cultural commodity, what happens at the marketing stage? And I found that each of these stages, they were either um, kind of being steered or they internalized these processes that kind of ended up, re- you know, kind of um, ended up reproducing, again, as I said, the tropes they set out to challenge. And so the idea of racialized governmentality is really it's kind of helped me think through this. Isn't a conspiracy? A lot of the time when they are working with, you know, white gatekeepers, they're not, you know, these people like to think of themselves as quite liberal, actually, <laughs> being from in charge. And, you know, they're encouraging, in a weird way, black and brown culture production. Yet, even so, it was like, well, this isn't going to work. You know, the kind of that language of this isn't going to work with our core audience. Yeah, so therefore yeah. we need to kind of market it in this way or package it in this way or kind of, you know, it's that, it's so it, it's, it's, it's those kind of logics which... Um, which I get, as I said, are internalized both by the gatekeepers, but also by minority producers themselves, which explains why historical constructions of otherness, whether it's race, whether it's sexuality, whether it's class, whether it's gender, are reproduced um, time and time again. And one of the things, I mean, we, we should come back to cultural diversity maybe, but one of the things that's really nice about the book is, you know, you're, this is not a an entirely kind of ideas or ideological thing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of cold, hard cash and, and economics yeah. that explains this. And one of the phrases that I've, I've kind of taken for the book myself is this kind of industry law idea yeah. of the moment precisely of, you know, gatekeepers or you know people taking decisions who'll say like, well, yeah, black superheroes don't sell. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're going to have a woman director, you know, you probably need like, you know, a different kind of marketing campaign. Yeah and a different kind of niche for that film where it's going to go. And it'd be interesting to hear kind of what this industry law term is is alluding to and almost how um, not just the economics, but the kind of assumptions about economics reproduce uh, pretty narrow uh, ideas about race. Yeah, so industry law, and that's law, Um, <laughs> I was at a conference and like everyone was like tweeting, "What's this industry law?" He's talking L A W, and actually it's law L O R E, and it, and I and I took that from um, the work of a great um, kind of cultural studies production scholar, Tim Havens, um, Tim Havens from um, the US, um, and he wrote a brilliant book on this called Black, oh God, Black Television Travels, I think. And so he works for this phrase to talk about, I mean, it's law is in literally, quite literally, the stories, yeah, make, yeah, yeah, the yeah. stories we make up, uh, which nonetheless become the kind of, end up regulating or indeed governing the way in which kind of black, in his, in, his interest in black television, you know, black television gets made. Um, and the thing about this industry law is that also, you know, it's informed by a broader social, cultural kind of understandings of race, right? That people bring with them into their work in the cultural industries. Keith Negus is really good on this as well. Um, and that, yeah, and, and, it's, and I guess what is really interesting, you know, Tim Havens talks explicitly about industry law as a form of power knowledge, right? Um, again, going back to the old Foucault, but 
Um, and I think that's a, I guess what's really interesting about that is because yeah, it it there's two things that really that I find really interesting about the concept or I take from Haven's notion of industry law. The first is how actually what are incredibly um, uh, ideological assumptions about culture and race uh, are hidden, disguised as common sense commercial economic logic. So obviously this is uh, you know. A, it just, it's just the case that a magazine cover without with a black person on the front is not going to sell as many. That's just the way it is. Obviously, Beyonce has put pay to that, right? Um, but nonetheless, and that brings me on to the second thing that I find industry law. is about how hard it is to budge. Tim Havens using the example of The Cosby Show, you know, and it was always assumed that a sitcom, a black cast sitcom, well, you know, might be a hit in the US, but it's certainly not going to travel very far. And we're talking about, you know, The Cosby Show, was a huge global hit. Bill Cosby was as big as Michael Jackson, I feel like, at one point um, globally. Um, and yet, despite that, that did nothing to change the law about uh, the kind of how black people sell abroad. In fact, what that showed to the people, to the industry, was that we need more, the audiences want kind of more family yeah. value sitcoms, you know, actually something quite conservative. So actually, industry law, rather than kind of around that, didn't, you know, Cosby Show did nothing to, despite the whole economic, you know, um, value of that show. I mean, you know, that was that made some people a lot of money, not least Bill Cosby himself. But um, did actually nothing to change the law, um, and um, and so yeah, it kind of explains to an extent, you know, certain, certain extent um, how entrenched these ideas about race are, and again, how that constrains the ability for people of color, in particular, to break out of that. Um, it didn't explain to me. It, it, I had the, the reason where I kind of depart from that slightly, and it is only slightly because I find it such a persuasive argument. Um, is that it would then suggest that? Well, I mean, it's about unconscious bias, right? So, that unconscious, you know, that's how the industry talk about it. I think industry law is a better way of understanding that unconscious, what the industry talk describes as in, um, unconscious bias. But then it would explain. It would suggest that if you had more minorities in the industries who have who are more likely to challenge those laws, then those laws will be challenged. And actually, what I argue is that they somehow become internalized by the people they actually constrain. Um, and so, actually, more black and brown gatekeepers in the within the current set of the cultural industries wouldn't actually do much to change that law. And I, so the question for me was, so what's happening then? Yeah, um, and which I guess brings us neatly back to the kind of, again, if not failure, but the sort of limitations of cultural diversity yeah. as an agenda in uh, typically British media. Yeah. I guess, you know, we're talking about 10 years ago now, you know, at that yeah. kind of moment with, you know, Channel 4 or uh, BBC. And yeah, like... Why didn't that transform things? You know, what, why is things like, you know, industry law so sticky and, yeah. and resistant to yeah. just, you know, kind of um, transformations in the demographics? Um, I, I want to come to that. I want to come at that question via the work of someone else who, um, who I encountered during the writing of this book, a kind of Canadian called Augie Flares. Flares, I'm sorry if you're listening, or people <laughs> <laughs> pronouncing your surname wrong. It's a pain I know too well, obviously. You but tweet it. What is it? I'm like 77. <laughs> but... <laughs> but he 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 kind of comes up with this thought experiment. He's looking at like ethnic me. He's looking at like this concept of ethnic media. We think of ethnic media, certain UK maybe you know Eastern Eye or The Voice, you know, kind of papers for specific 
racial ethnic groups. We think about them in different ways. We understand they cater to a community. And when we read them, when we open them, if we're not a part of that community, we kind of read them as like, well, this is for the community. They're, ad- they're advocates for that community, right? He, 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 he challenges us. He kind of puts forward a thought experiment. What happens if we thought of the mainstream cultural industries as white ethnic media? And all of a sudden, you would certainly, if you, you know, so if you apply the same kind of, well, we understand that, you know, the voice isn't piece of, a form of ethnic media, we read it accordingly. What, you know, by doing that, by, by suggesting the mainstream cultures are a form of white ethnic media, we certainly look at its news differently. But even its sitcoms and its celebrity chef shows and its, you know, all of those things as well, we kind of look, all of a sudden, it kind of sheds a new light on them. And I think that's a really um, interesting idea that's actually quite accurate. I think that media is institutionally white. It's there to make profit, absolutely, and it makes some people a hell of a lot of money. Um, but it's it also does serve an ideological role. And actually, that's one of the things I've really grappled with in the book. I'm, I'm you know... Not to be too modest about it, I'm not sure if I really resolve it. But, you know, what is the purpose of one of the questions I kept on returning to is the purpose of the culture industry is to extract surplus value, or is it to kind of um, reinforce the status of the dominant culture, you know, the white dominant culture? Um, so it's that argument about economic exploitation versus racial subjugation. And the easy answer is to say it's both. But I really wanted to unpack that more. And like I said, I think this is probably the start of a long journey for me <laughs> in terms of really thinking that through. But yeah, what is the role of the cultural industries? You know, is it about economic explanation, racial subjugation? Okay, if it's both, but then how do those things work together? Because actually sometimes it's quite counterintuitive, actually. Um, you know, diversity does sell, and it's shown that time and time again, but somehow, for some reason, the cultural industries never really wants to invest in it. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I have again, uh, I have a problem with the economic argument for diversity. Actually, I don't think that really does le- leads to the radical transformation that that I personally am interested in. Um, but yeah. So, so what? Because it, it's clear as well, you know, if almost to go back to where we where we started, if that tradition in critical race theory that was um, maybe not dismissive, but you know, downplayed. Mm. the importance of studying and engaging with popular culture if that's correct then you know there is almost a sort of um race and or racial ideologies and economic profits yeah. mean that you know there's no hope yeah. in um these moments of kind of you know there's no possibilities yeah. in the cultural industries yeah. and that's something that i think has shaped almost all cultural industry scholarship there is you know a, a moment of defense or you know yeah. a sense of like but there's still you know stuff to be defended here even in yeah. the most kind of you know bleak um, political economy critiques there's still a sense of you know well things could be different yeah. so w- what is the kind of the moment of hope what what are the kind of you know the things that might be done differently yeah. you know, how might media serve these radical or transformative projects that go beyond just ideology and economics one of the things i really i really wanted to um i've really foreground right at the beginning i think is that as much as the cultural industries you know kind of kind of produce 
discourses around race that are kind of constrained with this incredibly narrow uh, regime of representation, kind of reproducing the same old tropes of race that seem to emanate from colonial times. I don't want to do any kind of disservice to that argument. But then also, and this sounds a bit simplistic, but um, I'll kind of, let's see if I can, you know, develop it further. But also it produces a lot of stuff that I love, whether that's music, whether that's books, whether that's films, whether that's television shows. In the preface, I talk about some of my favourite stuff that's made by people of colour um, in, you know, within the core cultural issues. We're not even talking kind of really obscure, esoteric, DIY, underground, uh, no one would heard of it stuff unless you're part of this scene. You know, I'm not even talking about that. Um, and the cultural industries has that potential. Um, there was nothing, I mean, Black Panther, I don't know if you've heard of that film. That no. came out, it came out just a month ago. Um, superhero film, <laughs> all black cast. But, but yeah, <laughs> made, made a couple of quid. Yeah, yeah, yeah it did all right. It did all right at the box office. But it did, um, but other than casting an entire, you know, predominantly black cast, um, there's nothing radical about that production of that no. film whatsoever. No. It fulfills all of the same, you know, the, the, the kind of the superhero format. It ticks all the boxes yes. um, from storyline to the way it's marketed, right? Absolutely nothing radical about that whatsoever. Yet, obviously, we've seen what an incredible um, affective impact it had, uh, not least amongst the black community, right? Um, so this was a hyper-commercial production, which seems to achieve something quite radical. You know, just how we can really truly measure that is yeah, another yeah. question altogether. Yeah. But certainly if you talk to people who watch it, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's had this incredibly, as I said, kind of affective, yeah. um, it's had this incredibly affective, affective power. One of the things, and, and so that's why, so, so that's more than saying sometimes the media can be good. You know, yeah, it's mostly yeah, yeah. shit but sometimes there's some good stuff. Actually, there's something that we need to take that really, really seriously. And that's what took me to kind of the cultural industries reset, kind of scholarship, you know, David Hesmanhouse, Mark Banks, that stuff, but also more kind of political economy stuff like Des Friedman, who talk about the contradiction of cultural production. And Nicholas Garnham, obviously, is like the key cultural industries theorist here. And he makes this point about as much as, you know, and this is what I take from it anyway, is that as much as audiences crave familiarity, we also crave novelty and difference. I think that you, Nicholas Garnham describes a use value, if you like, of like, you know, cultural commodities as novelty and difference. Um, and out of that then, what is, you know, and I know it sounds kind of clear, but what's more novel and different than, than the marginalised racial experience? You know, that you don't know that you might not have encountered before. Um, and obviously we've seen that with Black Panther, with Get Out, I think it was, a, I think a much more interesting film personally, and um, and that and that resonated in really I think again profound ways, but the point is they're they're not aberrations they're not flukes they're not like kind of productions that happen to sneak through, break through these kind of conservative gatekeepers kind of sneak in through the back door. They were constituted by the very logic of the cultural industries, and and so for that reason I wanted to I really wanted and I, I was kind of a little bit worried that it might be seen as a kind of a kind of celebration of popular culture and isn't it great I didn't want to lose that kind of critique of how of how racist the media is but also I wanted to do justice to those moments where something more radical happens and to go back to you that's a very long-winded way of going back to your uh, to actually go back to your question I think it's about 
and this is something I think I'm going to develop further, um, is it's about creative freedom. And the fact is, I guess one of the key conclusions of this book is that, uh, well, another thing that cultural industries, David Hesmanhouch talks about tight, loose, tight control. So cultural production is actually, cultural producers, symbol creators, a filmmaker, an author, a musician, actually probably has uh, more autonomy than perhaps any other worker. I mean, well, I'm sure you can maybe, give me some... Well, you, no, I was going to... Maybe aside from academics. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, I think, I think you might be right there. But, like, you know, you have incredible amounts of autonomy. You don't, you know, you don't tell Kendrick Lamar how to write a song. You let him... You just let him get on with it. So, so actually, civil creators have loose control. But actually, it's the minute when you hand over yeah. your manuscript, your master tape, your, you know, the final edit of your film, actually, culture is just then employ tight control, yeah. techniques of tight control, because basically cultural production is inherently risky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you know, have the, you can have kind of the biggest budget, the hottest director, the best screenwriter, the big, you know, the biggest Hollywood star in your film, but you're still not guaranteed to, to certainly make a profit. And so at that point, they employ tight control. You get focus groups in, yeah. you do your market research, yeah. you kind of take this film, which is actually quite challenging in some ways, but you kind of fix it within a particular movie format so audiences recognise it immediately. Um, and you employ all these kind of techniques, which, you know, is all of so to, to that, that essentially amount to a form of tight control. So David Hesmanhouch characterises cultural production as loose, loose control and, and tight control. Um, for people of colour, I argue, and other minorities, I argue, actually, they have tighter forms of control at the supposed loose control point of production, and even tighter forms of tighter control at that other, you know, the point, point at the moment of marketing distribution somewhere. Yeah. Essentially, they don't have, people kind of don't have the same creative freedom as their white counterparts. I guess that's kind of what I'm arguing. Um, there's always spaces and gaps for people to mount their own kind of interventions and do something radical. And one of the things I argue in the book is that, yes, that often happens. Independence yeah. is a very key element yeah, like, well, But also it can happen in the most corporate settings yeah, well, as well. Yeah, so when you're talking about Black Panther, obviously, you know, the, the other example is, is Moonlight. And, and yeah. almost Moonlight hit perfectly the industry law of, yeah. you know, well, it, you know, very risky, didn't find, you know, yeah. we, we should question the audience, but it didn't cost any money and they had to hustle. And, yeah. you know, and almost the kind of the framing of Moonlight beyond, you know, fantastic Oscar win and stuff yeah. like that was a sense of like this is the kind of independent film that has an independent film story yeah. that you should be comfortable with yeah. and that's you know the kind of context in which you should see it whereas almost the kind of and, and you're right you know there are things about Black Panther that we should be very critical of yeah. like you know in terms of the various kind of tropes it reproduces yeah. within the genre but for a moment in the genre of yeah. a corporate machine that is risking a very large amount yeah. of money it's almost revolutionary, yeah. and uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's funny. You kind of, um, I think you're too modest about the book in mm-hmm. in the sense of like the book not only grapples with this, but I think it tells the story of, of this tension, and by bringing that tension to light, is you know kind of raising consciousness about yeah, it, yeah. both in terms of a kind of you know critical political economy tradition, and also maybe in terms of those elements of cultural media studies that yeah. are perhaps a little too celebratory. Yeah. Yeah. Now I was trying to, I just, you know, I use the word ambivalent a lot in this book. I use the word contradiction a lot in this book. And, you know, I'd want to assure the reader that it's not just, you know, just kind of sitting on the fence, you know, 
stuff's complicated. What are you going to do? I think there is, you know, one, one of the things I really try and uh, establish in the book is that, you know, there is a social theoretical explanation for why these patterns reoccur, both the negative and the good, you know. Uh, and and so that's what I really wanted to kind of get at. Um, you know, the question of cultural politics is a really complex one anyway. You know, this was... Honestly, as I wrote this book, Dave, it just kind of gave me a bigger headache um, <laughs> as I wrote it. Because, you know, what? how do you know? What What do we decide as this is an important cultural, political yeah. moment? You know, yeah. this is good art. This is bad art in the, in, in the context of race, cultural politics. Um, you know, what's the normative stance we should take on that? And, you know, and that's incredibly complex. Um, but I do definitely... That's why I think the question of cultural production is really interesting because actually rather than think about what's a better representation of black people, what's a better representation of Asian people, actually I think by pulling it into the context of the culture industries, we come to the question of, which I think is a more productive one, is are black and Asian people and black and brown people able to tell the stories that they want to tell? Yeah. And that to me is actually much better normative stance in which to interrogate the politics of representation. Because it immediately says, well, what kind of systems do we need to enable? Exactly. And what kind of systems do we have that are preventing or stopping? Or, exactly. You know, offering a little bit of that creative freedom, yeah. but not enough. Exactly. And that takes us to kind of solutions uh, that are offered by, you know, kind of critical political economy about kind of the dangers of media concentration and media conglomeration, which makes kind of certainly independent production really difficult it certainly means making art and culture in those contexts difficult when you're beholden to shareholders and advertisers you know traditionally those aren't those aren't great for minority producers who are seen as not kind of attracting the lucrative audiences that advertisers want so you know there's political economy there but also there's about kind of raising consciousness kind of social and cultural consciousness certainly on the part of minority producers in terms of well actually kind of understanding precisely the ways in which the dynamics of production will constrain them and then what can they do then to evade that what how do they how what's the best way of negotiating that and often that's a that you know that that's a time and a place question at certain times if you want to have you know black panther wouldn't have had any you know that wouldn't have had the impact of it it had if it wasn't with Marvel um, and Disney with Disney or is it just Mark you tell me Dave are they like I don't know that's with Marvel yeah Marvel I don't know Universal I don't know who the studios are. So, Again, so I guess what I'm saying is that that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have had the impact if it wasn't on a, you know if it was done independently yeah. it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had the same impact similarly you wouldn't have been able to make Moonlight with a mainstream studio actually by you know having the autonomy that independent art house cinema the independent art house cinema affords you allows you to kind of do something a bit more transgressive um, it's all temporal it happened you know at certain moments something you know um, feels like you know a radical gesture at other times it isn't you know the same representation now seems radical to us and take a decade's time will seem deeply conservative right representations have both radical and reactionary elements as well uh, but focusing on cultural production and, and the way and, and whether people of colour and other minorities or other, those othered um, have the yeah ability the freedom tell the stories they want to tell I think that's that's a question that at times certain settings will offer that but yeah it's it, it's not I guess what I'm saying I'm not there's not a blueprint for how to do this best that's what I'm saying it just depends on context it's contingent to use Stuart's word so what's what's next I mean there, there is there must be the temptation to a sequel that basically does the same thing or you know <laughs> a radical like 
I don't know, alt jazz book with, you know. Yeah, like I like the, the sound the, of that. The prog turn. <laughs> you talk, yeah, the difficult second album. Yeah. I'm actually going a bit more mainstream, actually. I'm selling out. <laughs> selling out. Stadium, doing, stadium tours. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing, I'm writing a book, which it will be on race. I think it's going to be called Race Culture and Media. Basically, all my books, I've realised, are basically just going to feature the same three words in a different order. <laughs> but this one's more about, like, again, I mean, I think you're right. You know, one of the really pleasing things about the reaction to this book, and whether it actually, you know, does this or achieves this is another question, but I get a sense that people were waiting for a book yeah. on, yeah, you know, yeah. on yeah. this topic. There hasn't. Yeah. And um, there's obviously been some amazing research that tackle this. And, you know, the book isn't, it's, it, 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 the strength of the book is precisely because of the great research that's been done. And not it's to be too, awesome too parochial, but I think particularly in the British context. Yeah. I mean, there, there are definitely you know, some really key interventions. I know you're yeah. very into Ben Pitch as well. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I think this is the kind of thing of like the British context in the Yeah, well. yeah. And 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 so um it's uh so actually I feel like there's more work to be done in trying to reinvigorate that uh that this field of research and, and to inspire students in particular to take it up, not least in terms of enabling them enabling more people of color more in particular into academia right you know to do this kind of research um so the next thing i'm doing is a kind of more you know intervention is this is why race and media is important and is this this is linked to a new ma as well yeah yeah so my ma uh, which i set, set up with brett and louis at goldsmiths called race media and social justice so uh there's you know this there's this sense I certainly get from as much as I've kind of said, like, you know, in kind of race critical studies, certainly in kind of the sociology of race, the kind of issue of media and popular culture, even news to a lesser extent, are very marginal, right? You know, in just in terms of like the research agenda, if you look at what, how race is being researched and studied, certainly in the context of British sociology, kind of the question of media and culture issues is like way marginal. But then my experience from speaking to students or working with students is they're really desperate for this stuff they invest a lot in these issues um and not only that that's not just some kind of kind of solipsistic kind of sense or you know just kind of wanting you know, <laughs> you know this narcissistic we want to make sure that we look right on the media actually it's very much in relation to issues of social justice they don't for them it's obvious that the way in which minorities are uh, represented in the media or drawing from Herman Gray, I talk about how race is made by the media. I think I prefer that term. Um, feeds into their experiences in their daily lives, whether it's on the streets, whether it's in universities, whether it's in the workplace. You know, they don't see a kind of split. Um, and so in light of that, I'm kind of really, you know, that's that's kind of inspired me actually to kind of think that, well, actually, this is really important. And I think... Um, the next, you know, the next show, you know, I believe, I believe students are our future. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, and, and then so, yeah, that, that's emboldened me, if you like, or inspired me to, to do something that actually kind of sets out clearly why we need to take these issues seriously. Um, and so, yeah, that's what the next project is. And then after that, I don't know, who knows? Big data. <laughs> Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Anamik Sahar about his new book, Race in the Cultural Industries. 